All right, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to 1 Corinthians 13. I'm going to continue our study of what love is from what the Apostle Paul says about it in 1 Corinthians 13. Um, I do want to do a couple things here. See this guy right here? That's Thomas Whitmer. You guys remember him? And Liz, where are you? Okay, there she is. Yeah, they were members here a while back. They now live in uh, Pennsylvania. We miss them, so it's great to have you here. Also, um, if you are on our Bible quiz team, would you stand? There they are. This is uh, the tournament trophy they just won. Uh, so let's uh, thank the Lord for working through them. That's pretty awesome, guys. Well done. Uh, they study the scriptures and then they uh, are quizzed on their memory of the scriptures and they compete against other churches and uh, they won. So uh, good job, guys. Pretty used to it. Good. Um, I'm going to read uh, 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8. It's on page 220. If you are a kid who's looking for a word of the day, it's selfish. And uh, let me read this. Here now, God's holy true and life-giving word. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, I think that um, many of us just seeing the title of the sermon uh, feel the weight of our sin and our guilt. And I love that uh, you love to teach us and to remind us and to fill our hearts with the truth of what Christ has done on our behalf. As we have just sung together, Christ alone, cornerstone, weak, made strong in the Savior's love. And so I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would be with us now as the Word of God is preached and that you would give us great hope in the strengthening that you'll give to us uh, as we rely on you. And so uh, as, we, as we talk about love again this morning, Lord, uh, be with us and shape us and transform us, liberate us, make us more like you that we might know more of the joy that you have. And we pray these things in Jesus' name for his sake, amen. So there were two little boys, they were brothers, and they were fighting over the last pancake one morning uh, when they were having breakfast, and their mother heard them bickering, and, um, and, and finally she said, boys, boys, you're both being very selfish. And she said, uh, what do you think the right thing to do would be? And the older boy said, 
Mom, I, I think the right thing would be to give my brother the, the pancake. And she said, that's right, sweetie. So what do you want to do? And he said, I'd like to let my brother do the right thing. <laughs> uh, well played, little guy. Um, selfishness. Listen to this. Uh, several years ago, there uh, was a woman who uh, contracted to teach at a school. She signed a contract to teach uh, at a school. And then in August, right before the school year started, she was offered uh, another job at a different school, one that was more close to where she wanted to live. So she called the first school and said, I need to break my contract. I'm going to work at this other school. And um, basically the reason that she gave to the department chairman that she talked to was that she had peace about it. And so when the department chairman was talking to the principal, he said, yeah, she, she's, she's just going to take this other job, and now we don't have a teacher for that grade. And uh, he said, but she said she had peace about it. And the principal said, well, that's great that she has peace, and now we have the pieces. stings a little, you know, that, that reality when somebody has seemingly done something that's, that benefits them but leaves others uh, in a bind. I think we've all been on the losing end of somebody doing something selfish. And, you know, we've been working our way through these things that the Apostle Paul says about love in 1 Corinthians 13 now. It's our fifth week, and we've talked about how love is patient and kind. It doesn't envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. And now we get to the fifth verse where Paul says, basically, that love is not selfish. Um, if you look at the translation in the ESV, which is the one that we use, uh, they translate it as, love does not insist on its own way. And that's a fair translation. This is one of the rare occasions where I actually think there are other translations that are more helpful. The word way is actually not there in the Greek. Um, if you look at the New American Standard Bible, it's, it's a little more specifically literal. There they have Paul saying, love does not seek its own. Uh, I like the NIV on this, actually. The NIV says, love is not self-seeking. And another translation says, love is not selfish. And I think that's the most helpful way to view what Paul is saying, that love is not selfish. If we are going to love the people around us, if we're going to love as God would have us love, uh, then we cannot be selfish. Um, look at this. If you look up the word selfish on, um, the, in the dictionary, uh, you will find that it says, to be selfish is to be devoted to or caring only for oneself. Uh, concerned primarily with one's own interests, benefits, welfare, etc., regardless of others. And when I saw that, I thought, yeah, that's pretty bullseye on what Paul is talking about here in 1 Corinthians 13, that love is not selfish. And as, as much as we'd like to wish that Paul had written about this so that we would be able to identify when someone's being unloving and being selfish, uh, he actually wrote it because the 
church that he wrote it to, the church in Corinth, they really needed to hear it because they were being selfish. And um, we'd be fools to assume there's not another church that needs to hear this, and that would be us and every church. That's why it remains in God's Word. You and I need to be reminded and taught that love is not selfish. It doesn't think only of itself. It doesn't concern itself primarily with its own interests, benefits, welfare, etc. And, if, you know, as I thought about this this week, it's really sad the way that selfishness really does so much damage to the different relationships that we have. It's, uh, one author said that um, selfishness is the greatest saboteur of love. If you think about in our marriages, one of the big reasons that we struggle in marriage is because one or both are being selfish. Um, if you think about parenting, part of what makes parenting so hard is the selfishness in me, in kids. Um, if you think about at work, why sometimes we don't get along with people at work, it's selfishness. If you think about at school, um, students struggle with selfishness. We all struggle with it, and it does a lot of damage in our relationships, and it really, selfishness is one of the main reasons for a lot of the sadness and suffering and misery in the world. And so the more that we think about it, the more we should begin to very much long to be liberated from it. And I would imagine most of us know that we do selfish things, and so hopefully uh, we're longing for that good news. And there is good news. The good news that we're focusing on this morning is that through faith, Christ gives us the joy of an unselfish life, okay? Uh, this is what we want to recognize this morning, that through faith, Christ gives us the joy of an unselfish life, Okay, it's good news, and we want to see that good news this morning in three ways. I want to talk about first the source of selfishness. Why are we selfish? Why do we do selfish things? Then second, I want to talk about the irony of selfishness. It's really quite ironic uh, that we do selfish things. Uh, third, we'll talk about the death of selfishness. What is it that God does to deliver us from selfishness so that we can have that sweet joy of an unselfish life? And let's start with the source of selfishness. Where does selfishness come from? And here's uh, what we can say, plain and simple. Human beings are selfish because of our fallen nature. And hear me on this. I'm not saying that we do selfish things sometimes. I'm saying that by nature we are selfish. We are by nature focused more on ourselves. We will by nature prioritize our needs over others. Now, it wasn't always like that. In the Garden of Eden, before the fall, Adam and Eve were not selfish. Everything Adam did, he did with concern for Eve and with concern for the glory of God. Everything Eve did, she did for concern with Adam and for concern with the glory of God. But then when the fall took place, when the serpent, when Satan came in and led them into sin and their fellowship with God was broken, immediately what you see if we look in Genesis is suddenly there's a selfishness. In fact, think about this. If you read the story of the fall in Genesis 3, what you see is that after they're tempted, after uh, they both sin, 
They run and hide from God. And so in Genesis 3, you see God comes after them. And I love the fact that God doesn't lead with, what have you done? He leads with, where are you? He's pursuing them. And they've run and they've hid. And Adam responds to God and said, well, I hid because we're naked. And he says, well, how do you know that you're naked? Did you eat of the tree that you weren't supposed to eat from? And what does Adam say? Genesis 3, 12, the first selfish statement. The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. And you can see it right there, right? Here's Adam. Who's he thinking about? Old number one, right? He's thinking about himself, throws his wife under the bus because he's thinking about himself. And right there, you see the problem not only with Adam and Eve, but all of humanity, all of humanity since the fall. This is the damage done to us in the fall. We, humanity dies spiritually and is by nature then inward-focused, selfish. If you've ever seen a carpenter plane wood, it's an interesting thing. Uh, a wood planer is this long thing, and as he slides the planer along this flat piece of wood to get it nice and a real flat surface, what happens is the blade, as it, as it peels off these little strips of wood, you know what happens to those pieces of wood? They curl up. So it was very straight, and then, once shaved off, they curl up, and on the floor, when a carpenter's done planing, a piece of wood is a bunch of curled little pieces of wood that used to be nice and flat. And that's what happened to you and I. Humanity in the garden before the fall was straight, but when Adam and Eve sinned, we curled up on ourselves. We became focused on ourselves. Jonathan Edwards says it this way. He says, the ruin which the fall brought upon the soul of man consists very much in that he lost his nobler and more extensive principles and fell wholly under the government of self-love. So you and I are born naturally loving ourselves the most and naturally thinking about our needs first and our interests and our benefit and our welfare and the reason this is so important is until you actually recognize that selfishness is not something you do, but it's something we are, you can't really begin to be set free from it. You know, we've got to acknowledge the real issue, that we, like those little pieces of wood, are curled up, and we, like those little pieces of wood, cannot unfurl ourselves. We cannot uncurl ourselves. We are dependent on someone else for that. And this, by the way, you know, totally flies in the face of what our society says about human nature. Our society is trying to believe, um, although I think it's getting a little harder for even the society to believe, that, that human beings are good by nature. That's what people want to believe in our culture, that humans are good and sometimes they do bad things. But the Bible doesn't let us get away with that. The Bible has a more, well, first has the true picture and it makes so much more sense. The Bible says that we're all sinful, we're all selfish. Romans 3, 10 through 12, Paul says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So the Bible helps us understand why the world's such a messed up place. It's not that there's good people and bad people. In the world, there's bad people and Jesus. That's it. That's it. And when we can finally own that, then 
God begins to do something about that selfishness, begins to deliver us from it. Now, we'll see how he does that through Jesus, but before we do that, I want to talk a little bit about the irony of selfishness, okay? We know the source. Let's talk about the irony of selfishness. And the irony of selfishness is that it backfires. When we do selfish things, things that really only benefit us and leave other people in a jam, things that really only serve us, it doesn't actually accomplish what we hoped it would. It backfires. Because what happens is when we, when we do selfish things, we generally are doing those things thinking, this will make me happy, this will make me comfortable, this is what I need. But then as we see the fallout of doing things that only serve us, there's disorder, there's misery, there's sadness, there's damage to relationships. James says this in James 3.16, look at this. James 3.16, he says, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. And so what James is saying is that wherever people are only thinking about themselves or thinking about themselves a lot, there's just going to be disorder. God has not designed the world to work in a way where selfishness leads to good things. And so we should want to be liberated from our selfishness because of how counterproductive it actually is, how ironic it is that we seek to do these things that only serve us, and then in a, they end up not serving us. You, you know where you see this the clearest? Um, in little kids. You know, you, you don't have to teach a child to be selfish. You do have to teach a child to share. Right? It's natural that they sing the song of the seagulls in Finding Nemo. Mine, mine, mine. Right? That's natural for a kid. All of us, it was for me. But I want you to think about this for a second. What kind of face is a child making when they're clutching to some toy they don't want to share? I've never seen a kid say, this is mine, <laughs> this is mine, I'm, I'm having so much joy right now holding on to this one thing. No, instead, they're, they're never more angry, they're never more miserable when they're saying, no, no. And so as a father, now think about this, when, as parents, when we see our kids being selfish, uh, yes, we are sad about the sinfulness of that, but we're also very much grieved by the misery that they are experiencing in that moment. We want them to be delivered from that because we can see on their face just how sad they really are as they clutch to the thing that they are being selfish about. And I think this helps us understand why God calls us to repent of selfishness, right? He calls us to repent of it, to turn away from it, and to, to trusting Him and to living in unselfish ways. Why does He do that? Well, yes, He hates the sin of selfishness. He does. But He also loves us, and He wants 
us to be liberated from that misery that we are experiencing when we are being selfish. Because it continues as adults, we just hide that misery a lot better. So just like a loving parent wants the child to be free, not only are they mad about the sin or they're upset about that sin, but really they're, they're wanting them to be free from that misery. So God calls us. Look at Philippians 2, verse 4. It's one example. He says, Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. This is God saying, this is how you'll have joy. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 24, Paul says, Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Okay, he's saying, don't only focus on your stuff. Think about those around you. That's where we find joy. And think about the seriousness of self-seeking. Paul in Romans 2, verse 8 says, But those, uh, for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. And what he's uh, getting at there is really the sinfulness of humanity and the reason God condemns those who aren't trusting in Jesus is because they have earned it in their self-seeking and in their selfishness. And so really, we, uh, what we need is two things. We need to be forgiven. We need to be reconciled to God for having been so selfish. And then we also need to be liberated from its power. We need the selfishness in us to die if unselfishness is going to live. And that's why uh, we want to talk about the death of selfishness. How does selfishness die in us? And it all centers on the cross. The cross of Christ is the key to you and I having an unselfish life. Think about this. There's a well-known quote by Abraham Kuyper. You've probably heard it before. Um, He says, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. Now here's the thing. Christ is the one who can and should and does actually cry mine over everything, every molecule. That's just not what Abraham Kuyper said. This is what the Apostle Paul says. Look at this, Colossians 1, 15 through 20. What does Jesus own? What rightfully belongs to his? What does he not have to share? <laughs> Oh, first, or, uh, Colossians 1, 15 through 20, it says, He, being Christ, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things. And in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. What Paul is saying here in regards to what we're talking about when it comes to selfishness is that the cross The cross was the most unselfish thing that ever took place. But here's here's Jesus, the rightful owner of all things, who owes nothing to anyone. Chooses to give everything up and die on the cross so that all who believe in him 
could be forgiven of their sin, saved by grace through faith. And so this is why the death of Christ matters. The death of Christ paid for all of our sin, and he didn't have to do that. He did that for us. He chose to do the most unselfish thing so that you and I could be free. And you do know that, right? Like, let's, if you're a believer, you, you really are forgiven for the selfish things that you've done. And the more we believe that, the more our hearts worship, right? The more our hearts worship the living, the risen Christ. But that's not the end of the good news. The good news is not simply that Christ has unselfishly paid our debt, given up everything and paid our debt on the cross, but his death also has broken the power of sin so that you and I are not enslaved to sin, We're not enslaved to the government of self-love. Look at this. Paul says this in Romans 6, 5 through 11. He says, For we have been united with him. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. What he's getting at here is by faith, we are united to Christ, or rather, Christ has united himself to us. We are in union with Christ. Verse 6, he says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died to sin, he died once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now this is really critical here because what he's saying is that uh, through our faith union with Christ, his death not only paid for our sins but broke the power of sin and his resurrection means that we too have been raised to new life which means we're not under the domineering power of sin anymore, which means in union with Christ, we really can see His unselfish life manifested in ours. When we recognize that we'll never be able to do it on our own, just like those little pieces of wood will never be able to unfurl themselves, they'll always curl back up, Only when we realize that it's only through Christ and through Christ in us that He flattens it out, that He brings His unselfish life life forward in us as we rely on Him, as we believe the gospel, as we believe He's within us. Look at how Jonathan Edwards says it. I love this. He says, self-love is the sum of natural principles. Okay, again, he's hitting on the fact that naturally we're going to be in love with ourselves and only thinking about ourselves. Self-love is the sum of natural principles, as divine love is of supernatural principles. Now get this. This divine love is no plant which grows naturally in such soil as the heart of man. But it is a plant transplanted into the soul out of heaven. It is something divine something from the Holy Blessed Spirit of God, and so has its foundation in God and not in self. One of the reasons we struggle so much with selfishness is we keep trying to 
not be selfish in our own power. But there's nothing in us that will stop us from being selfish. But Christ has not only paid for our sins, but now dwells within us through the power of the Holy Spirit to transplant that divine love into us so that it can grow in us. And so the unselfishness of Christ can be manifested in our lives. What does it look like? What does it look like then if we are hearing this loving call to repent, to turn away from selfishness, to put others' needs before our own? What does it look like? I'll tell you one thing that I realized this week. Um, One thing that it means is that if we're not going to be selfish, if we're going to let the unselfishness of Christ live in us, uh, we're going to have to ask more and listen more to the people that are around us to identify what they actually need. Here's one of the most convicting sentences I read this week. Jonathan Edwards again. He says, A selfish man is not apt to discover the wants of others, but he overlooks them and is hardly brought to see them. And so for me and for you, for a lot of us, repentance is beginning to actually ask our spouse, ask our children, ask our classmates, ask our coworkers, how can I serve you? What, what can I do that would bless you? See, this is what happens. If we get our eyes off ourselves and onto Christ, He will put them onto our neighbor. And so it's asking and listening. It's dying to ourself and trusting that as we do these things, as we let the unselfishness of Christ live in us, not only will He be glorified, but also there will be joy. That's a sweet thing that we have to recognize as well. There's more joy when we are finding our joy in doing things that other people need. Listen to this. John Piper says this in Desiring God. It is really powerful. Look what he says. Selfishness seeks its own private happiness at the expense of others. Love seeks its happiness in the happiness of the beloved. And his proof is basically a reference to Jesus. He says, it will even suffer and die for the beloved in order that its joy might be full in the life and purity of the beloved. And it makes me think of Hebrews 12 too, which says, for the joy that was set before Jesus, he endured the cross. So he was able to suffer the cross knowing that in doing so, he would give us unimaginable joy. And he finds joy in knowing that he would give us joy. And that's what God is calling us to. He's not calling us to not pursue joy and happiness. He's calling us to learn that the way he's designed the world is that we find that joy and happiness as we seek to glorify him and be unselfish and care for those around us and be aware of what they need and give up things so that they might have what they want or what they need. That's the sweet gift of an unselfish life. I'm watching this happen as a friend of mine, a good friend of mine, uh, has a great promising career, loves his job, is doing really well, but uh, in recent months his wife had begun to really hint that she just really has this deep longing to live near family. 
And I, uh, week after week, I watched this man uh, begin to see that if he were to give up this career and see if he can find a job near her family, that it would give his wife tremendous joy. And I watched him over a number of weeks kind of make that decision, and I watched his heart fill with joy knowing that now that they've decided to do that, she's so excited. And he doesn't really care about what he's given up because he's finding his joy and his happiness in her joy and her happiness. That's what it can look like. As we, again, trust deeply that Christ's death has paid for our sin and broken the power of our sin and selfishness, and in union with Christ, he, His unselfishness lives in us as we rely on Him, rely on His power. So I would say, maybe it's time to ask our loved ones and the people around us, in what ways have I been selfish? In what ways can I choose the unselfish life by the power of Christ? And I'm so excited for the joy that's going to ensue because of that. Let's pray. Father, we do acknowledge that it's, we cannot do this on our own. We cannot uncurl ourselves. We cannot. But you have revealed to us in your word that through faith, we've been made new and we are not under sin's power. Would you strengthen us for this? And would you give us tremendous joy in getting our eyes off of ourselves, onto those around us, and onto things that will glorify you? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.